ESP.net. There's a reason Baker's Nursery in Yemassee's been in business for over a quarter of a century. Quality, selection, and competitive pricing. From one-gallon plants to fully mature trees, Gary and Charlene have it all. Baker's is located off Highway 21 in Yemassee, one mile from Harold's Country Club. Baker's is open 8 to 4 daily till 2 on Fridays and can be found at the Port Royal Farmer's Market on Saturday. They can be reached at 843-589-8156 or online at bakersnurserylc.com. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. For the next hour, we will be here uh, answering people's questions. And if you have a particular issue, whether it's in relation to doctrine, lifestyle issues, uh, challenges you're facing in your life, and you'd like biblical counsel, pick up the phone, call us directly here, 525-1859. We have a toll-free number for our internet listeners, and that's 877-WAGP980. Or if you like, uh, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. So any one of those three ways will bring you in contact here with the Bible line. When you call, you can remain anonymous. You can go on the air. You can dictate your question however you'd like to give it. Rick, great to be here today for the Bible line. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we have uh, actually got a number of questions that have come in, so let's get to them right now. Uh, One person would like you to uh, consider writing a version of the Bible. They write, why don't Bible-believing people with correct doctrine like yourself get together and come out with a Bible translation. That way, we don't have all this controversy about heretical religions, homosexuality, and all sorts of other lost people uh, being involved in Bible translations. It would be a Bible translation for people who have correct doctrine and believe in verbal plenary inspiration instead of trying to sell Bibles to charismatics and, well, all sorts of other people who have incorrect doctrine, they write. Well, let me just pause and uh, comment on that briefly. I don't think it's really an issue of Bible translation. Uh, We have a multiplicity of translations that are available in the English tongue. Unlike most peoples of the world, we have a wide variety, and they fall on a wide plane in terms of how the translation is done. There are certainly uh, what we might call fluid equivalent that are more literal in nature, The most literal would be like an interlinear Bible where you have the Greek or Hebrew text and underneath it the English text. 
a very wooden, very difficult to follow um, for an English reader. Um, but most translations that are fluid equivalent that are a little less literal but still faithful, uh, word for word, as much as you can move from one language to the next would be like the King James, the ESV, the NAS. Uh, as you move down the scale, you have more of a dynamic equivalent where it one extreme would be a paraphrase translation like the good news the living bible um the message and then uh moving upstream back towards a, a fluid equivalent but still in the dynamic equivalent category would be something like the niv less than literal but uh paraphrases a lot now i will say that certainly there have been some translations done in recent years that have been less than faithful to the word of god i would put the message in that uh it's strangely enough all the passages in the new testament that deal with the subject of homosexuality have been obliterated but but when we're speaking about overall literal translations, uh, there are many good ones. And the issue is not so much an issue, oh, we don't have a good translation of the Bible, as much as it is, uh, how do we interpret the Bible? What are the principles of interpretation that God gives us as we apply ourselves to the Holy Scripture? And our interpretation should be as such that uh, we're not embarrassed by our our interpretation. That is to say, we're not coming up with interpretations that in one passage says this and in another passage contradicts. Uh, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. The Scriptures really interpret themselves as we let Scripture interpret itself. So uh, it's not so much an issue of translation, though there are some certainly aberrant translations that are out there. It's more an issue of hermeneutics. How do we interpret the Bible? And God, has, in his wisdom, has given us principles within the Bible on how to interpret the Bible. And the way you see that most pointedly is in the New Testament, where the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament. And what principle do they apply? Well, they just apply a, a literal, plain interpretation of the text. Uh, God said what he meant. He meant what he said. And you know, we're, we're just to take it at face value. That doesn't mean we ignore figures of speech and metaphors and so forth. But uh, we, we just, you know, if I if I say I'd like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch, you don't say, oh, I, I guess you want to go to Applebee's and have a steak. No, I said I want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I said what I meant. I meant what he said. I, I said, and yet people, when it comes to the scriptures, they apply some weird principles of interpretation, and that's why there is a lot of confusion. Or sometimes there are certainly moral issues that are driving their ship. So you have, for instance, the um, the chaplain to the university at Harvard who took Romans 1, uh, where God describes the sin of homosexuality, and he applies a strange and weird way in which to interpret the text. Uh, there, let me just read it to you to give you one example. God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurities that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so um, the chaplain at Harvard says, well, what the sin here is not the sin of homosexuality, but exchanging the natural for the unnatural. And by that he meant if you're born heterosexual and you engage in homosexual activity, then that's unnatural for you. 
But if you're born homosexual and you engage in heterosexual activity, then that's unnatural for you. So homosexuals should live their homosexual lifestyle and heterosexuals their heterosexual lifestyle. That's an abuse of the text. And that would not stand up lighting scripture, interpret scripture, much less the immediate context. But people twist the scriptures to quote the Apostle Peter to their own destruction. That's the nature of a false teacher. So again, I don't think it's so much an issue of the translations we have, though there are certainly, again, some translations that are less than faithful to the original and have taken a lot of liberty in how they've translated the Bible that they shouldn't have taken. It's more an issue of how we interpret the Bible and how we approach the scriptures. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this listener, Neil, writes, uh, do you think it is a contradiction to preach against cremation and be in favor of organ donation? What does the Bible say on these two subjects? And can you believe one and not the other, or do you need to believe both? Well, there's nothing in Scripture that speaks against organ donation. Obviously, there's not a verse that addresses the subject specifically any more than there's a verse that addresses the subject of television or movie rentals. But there are general overarching principles that God gives in his word for all time that gives us wisdom and discernment. Uh, Jesus, when he was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest of all the commandments? He said, in quoting Deuteronomy 6, the greatest commandment is to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And he said, the second is much like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so um, loving others as you would love yourself is is certainly an overarching principle that I think would dictate Uh, organ donation. We have a friend, Audrey and I, who um, she recently donated, I forgot what percentage, maybe it was half of her liver to a friend who needed, who had needed a liver transplant of such. Well, so she gave half her liver away. And of course, the thing about livers is they regrow. So her liver will grow right back. Was that sinful? No, I think that was an expression of life. I think that's a very pro-life kind of thing. I I think where you come into problems, because remember in the end, our body, Genesis says, will turn back to dust. Given enough time, no matter how well preserved or, you know, how much fluid is placed in the body and the preserving process, it's eventually going to rot and turn back to dust. And of course, the body that we have is not the one that is raised. Certainly God takes from the dust of the ground, as uh, Daniel 12 indicates, uh, wherever that may be found, whether it's in the depth of the sea, whether it's been disintegrated, God restructures the body so that there is identification. We recognize each other, but it's a different body. And that's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, that the natural body um, is sown like a seed in the ground, but in and of itself, it's not ready for heaven. This perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortality must put on that which is immortality, First Corinthians 15 teaches. So, you know, some Christians have feared, well, if I give my heart away at death, uh, I may not have a heart in the resurrection. That That's no more logical than if a guy had his leg blown off in Afghanistan and he's a Christian that at the resurrection he won't have a a, a body with two legs. Um, so the scripture doesn't teach it. That that's a false 
idea that maybe we've created in our own mind. So giving your organs away at death or even in life, some people donate a kidney or our friend uh, Rick Hove's wife, Sonia, who just gave away half her liver. That, that's, not a, that's not a problem, and that, that's not anti-biblical, and it's not a defamation of the Holy Spirit uh, that has made our bodies temples. I do think, though, we can cross a line when ethically um, we're donating organs of people who really are not dead. And um, the AMA came out with a very controversial decisions. Uh, I can't remember the exact year. I think it was around 94, 95, where the American Medical Association basically said, well, if there's not higher brain function, then uh, sustaining life is not necessary and uh, organ donation for such people is permissible. That was an ethical decision they made. Personally, I think a wrong one. Most more conservative Christians who want to err on the side of life would say, look, when there's no brain activity, then the person is truly dead. Uh, Certainly a body can be kept alive, air can be pumped into the lungs, blood can be circulated through the body through machines, Um, and you can do that for a very, very long period of time. But when there's no brain activity, then indeed death has taken place. But to the idea of getting someone pregnant, so that they can harvest a baby for uh, stem cells or other organs, I think obviously uh, crosses a line ethically. So those would be the parameters I think God would give us in his wisdom because of the way he views life. But there's nothing wrong with organ donation, and it's really a great thing. It's a great opportunity to help someone. All right, you're listening to The Bible Line. Our phone number is 843 843- Five two five one eight five nine toll free eight seven seven WAGP nine eighty, and you can also email us at tbl at wagp dot net. A listener just called in. They'd like to know about Romans thirteen seven, where it says to render honor to whom honor is due. What what exactly does that mean? Well, in thirteen seven, it says render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear honor to whom honor. And again, in the context, he's in the applicational section of the book of Romans, where chapter 12 deals with gifts, chapters, chapter 13 deals with government, and the role of government in the society in which you may find yourself. And he's opened the chapter by saying, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So if God is the one who raises up kings, if God is the one who raises up presidents, if there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God, then for us to dishonor the king, for us to dishonor the president is really to dishonor God. And so while we may not always agree, say, with a political point of view or even unrighteous, wicked rulers, that sometimes people get what they deserve. Um, People, because of their um, own sin, because God cannot erase the laws, the spiritual laws that he's written into the universe any more than he can erase the physical laws like gravity that he's written into the universe. Sometimes people get what they've sown. God has not mocked whatever a man sows, that he shall reap. 
And so if a nation, for instance, sows immoral, uh, sensual lifestyles, they may get an immoral, sensual leader. If a, a nation soul, sows a false ideology, they may get a leader that reflects that. And it's, it's a, in that case, that leader, though God didn't approve of Hitler per se in terms of what he did, the German people in the Second World War got what they wanted. They got what they deserved. And, um, and God used that as an expression of judgment. And we think of judgment sometimes just as something that's way out there in the future. And there's certainly that aspect of it. But in Romans 1, he speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. He speaks of a present aspect of the wrath of Almighty God. And sometimes that's seen in the leaders that we have. So with that said, I think um, we're to show them respect, we're to show, show them fear, and we're to show them honor still. We're to respect the office. We may not always respect the things the person does in the office, but we still respect the office. So for a popular um, songster this past weekend to compare our president to Hitler was a very dishonorable thing to do. Now, you may not agree with our president on a number of different stands, but to compare him with Hitler was an awful thing. He was wrong in doing that. And I think a lot of evangelicals, and I don't know where that guy stands spiritually. I don't think he's a believer. At least he doesn't show any of the fruit of it. But um, for Christians sometimes to speak of our president in a dishonorable way is an awful thing. Um, We may, again, differ with him, say, on his view of abortion. We may differ with him on his view of of marriage and the family and what constitutes a marriage or a family or civil unions. And we as evangelical Christians obviously cannot espouse some of the ideas that he has because they're in contradistinction to Scripture, but we're still commanded to pray for him. We're still commanded to show him honor. And there's a lot of things our president does that are very honorable, you know, I think of uh, the last election, a lot of Republicans were dead set against President Obama. But I thought, man, of all the guys who were running, he had the most honorable family. Um, you know, he, he, had it, he had it right with uh, commitment, one man, one woman, until death severs them, and a deep commitment and concern for his children. And he did a lot of things and has done a lot of things right. So where we can express honor and respect, we ought to and we should because we're commanded to. Anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to our next question. All right, indeed. We did have another emailed question to us. Seth writes, I recently read an article about the church not being the bride of Christ, utilizing Revelation 21, 9 to 12 as a basis for his argument. The principle of the church being the bride of Christ seems to be a common inference in evangelical Christianity today, and I'm wondering how accurate is that inference? Well, in the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's bride in passages like, uh, in books like the book of Hosea and a number of other passages in the Psalms. In the New Testament, God describes the church, which goes beyond Israel. It is both Jew and Gentile brought together under one unified group, hung together through the death of Christ and united together by the Holy Spirit who indwells each of us. That group is called the Bride of Christ. And so there are a number of different figures that are used in the Word of God to describe Christ's relationship to the church, seven to be specific. For instance, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. He's the vine, we're the branches. 
in, in the case at point here, he's the, he's the cornerstone, we're the living stones. And here, uh, he's the bridegroom, we're the bride. And so Paul can say in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives. As Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless, so also husbands ought to love their own wives. So he he gives a description here of the church being Christ's bride. Paul gets um, even more specific in terms of his language usage in um second corinthians for instance 11 and verse 2 for i am jealous for you with a godly jealousy for i betrothed you to one husband that to christ i might present to you present you as a virgin and so again there the church is presented as christ's bride um, in the Revelation, in the passage, uh, where's the question, Rick, that came through? I, I, I don't see it here. Uh, the, 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 the question that came through was in Revelation uh, 21, 9 through 12. And here it says, in one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here. I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So again, the same kind of terminology used and earlier in the book of Revelation in the 19th chapter, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So there are great implications with all the figures that God uses. There's a lesson in terms of who he is and what we are to be in each figure that God uses to describe his church. And Christ being the bridegroom we as the bride are not only positionally holy, declared righteous, and so in the Revelation, uh, dressed in robes of white, but we are to live holy. We are to be separated. We are not to have a divided heart in our affection for Christ, in our affection for the world. You cannot serve two masters. Um, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. God has called us to uh, live a holy, set-apart life away from the affections of the world. And so God, in the book of James, for instance, in the fourth chapter, describes um, a love of the world as a form of adultery, as a form of unfaithfulness. Uh, the, the, the person who is in love with the world is basically committing spiritually spiritual adultery. So it's a, a very important um, picture that God gives his people in the word of God that we need to take heed to and give very, very careful consideration. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteress, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We are to be different because we are members of the bride of Christ. All right, 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener would like to know, is the Holy Spirit a force or a person? He is not a force. He is a person. He is a distinct person within the Godhead. As Christians, we do not worship three gods. We worship one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. 
And the fact that, and it's important, I think, too, when you think about the Holy Spirit, there are really two aspects of who he is that you need to consider. One is that he is a person, and you need sometimes as you help people to understand the Holy Spirit to understand that he is a person, but also that he is God. Uh, That he is a person, he has all the attributes of personality. He has intellect, he has mind, so to speak. He has emotion and he has will. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 2, the Holy Spirit is said to search the deep things of God. Uh, He shows intellect. He's omniscient, as Job affirms. Um, He's omnipresent, uh, but that would be an aspect of his deity. But not only does he have intellect, he has emotion. Uh, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit for whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You don't grieve things or forces. You grieve people. And God, the Holy Spirit, is grieved within us. He, and you can sense it when you sin. Uh, the Holy Spirit who inhabits your new man, your human spirit, you've been made spiritually alive. When you sin, the spirit within you is grieved. And you sense that grief. Uh, you don't grieve forces. You, 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 you grieve persons. So he shows intellect. He shows emotion. And he has the aspect of personality in that he shows will. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, he gives gifts as he wills, as he chooses. So he has all the attributes of a person, mind, emotion, and will. But more than simply being a person, uh, he is God. We're persons, but we're not God. He's both has the attributes of personality and of deity. And so God can say in Acts chapter 5, as he uh, speaks through his servant, Um, Peter, look, Ananias, uh, you've not only lied to men, you've lied to the Spirit, and then he says you've lied to God. Um, He's associated with the other members of the Trinity equally. Every time we baptize someone, we are affirming the triunity of God. We don't baptize people in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but the Great Commission says, go therefore and make disciples of all peoples, all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. That's what the revelation of Scripture reveals, and that's what we are to believe. So uh, you had movies uh, like um, Star Wars that started coming out in the late 70s, uh, written by a guy named Lucas, who was an affirmed pantheist. In fact, uh, he wrote uh, quite pointedly in the 70s, because I remember reading some of his articles on Star Wars, his whole purpose, he said, in creating the Star Wars movie initially, and I know I, there was a trilogy, I don't know how many of those were ultimately produced, but his whole purpose in producing those was to promote pantheism. That's what he said. That's in print. You can read it. Uh, pantheism is all is God, pan, all, theism, God, all is God. And so God becomes impersonal. God becomes the chair I'm sitting in. God becomes the microphone I'm speaking through. God becomes a force, uh, an evil force. And, a, and, and there's a lot of distorted views that people have, but God is no force. God is a person, as is God the Holy Spirit. So when you think of him, don't call him it. Don't ever call the Holy Spirit it. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a cloud. He's not a dove. He is a person. And we're not to grieve him. All right. Jonathan from Westport, Massachusetts, says he is a 24-year-old parent and has been drawn to the station 
in which you broadcast up there. Upon listening to the show today, one of the questions mentioned was, why do bad things happen to good people? And the question seemed obvious in a sense. What he would like to refer towards uh, is, however, the story of Job from what he calls the wisdom books. Uh, He says, Job was a perfect example of a holy man of God who was wealthy and blessed in return. In chapter 1, verse 8, God is conversing with Satan and showing how good of a follower Job is. Satan then answers by doubting Job's faith in God once evil touches him. What's interesting to me, he writes, is that God agrees to put Job to the test. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is um, in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his uh, person. Uh, So Satan went forth. Now, bad things did happen to good Job, but the Lord let it be only further to glorify himself. This is the purpose of man after all. Uh, What I would like to know myself is how many conversations actually happen like this between God and Satan in the Bible. God is actually, in a sense, wagering or using man to beat Satan or discourage him. This is one of the more interesting verses that I've read so far in the Bible. I think it would be a great topic for the show if you could um, answer me back and give some information on how you perceive the relationship between Satan and God. Well, clearly, um, from the book of Job, you see that Satan has access uh, to the Father. There's coming a time when God will create a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, and any defilement that has come through Satan or his other sons, the, they're, they're called the sons of God. It's a, it's a term that is used, B'nai Elohim in the Old Testament, of anything that's a direct creation of God, and it comes that way through the Greek New Testament as well. And so Adam, for instance, is the only one who's called in the Old Testament a son of God because he is a direct creation of God. Um, the angels were created all at once, a fixed number. Some of those have fallen, but they are also called sons of God. Some are evil, some are holy, some are demons, some are set apart in a special way. And in the New Testament, by the way, we as believers are called sons of God because we are recreated in Christ Jesus. But what you do learn from the book of Job is that Satan does have access, and he goes, of course, in that first couple chapters, you read of it, and he basically says, God, look, the only reason Job serves you is you've bought him. Take away all the blessings, and you'll really see that uh, what he's made out of. And so God uh, really vindicates the character of Job, and he allows Satan to do what he wants to do with the exception of taking Job's life And Job indeed demonstrates that he is the righteous man that God refers to. Um, So we learn from that chapter, and we learn from other chapters in the Scripture that there's a war that goes on in the heavenly places. It's an invisible war. Uh, Daniel 10 would be a great chapter for you to read because you see fallen angels who actually have authority over given countries of the world. And you see holy angels warring with evil angels in this spiritual warfare that Paul um, refers to in chapters like Ephesians 6. In terms of your specific question, where else in the Bible do we see Satan having a conversation with God? We don't. That's the only place. In fact, there's only three times in all of the Word of God where you hear the voice of Satan. The first time, and by the way, Satan is called by many different names. He's called the the devil. He's called the slanderer, the evil one, and so forth. 
um, and his character is seen in what he says. Jesus said, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, and you certainly see that in Satan. So the very first time we see Satan speak, he slanders God before man there in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Did God really say, you know, uh, this? And he basically says to Adam and Eve, God's ripping you off. Uh, he's just withholding. He's not really a good God. He just knows that the day you eat from the fruit of the tree that, you know, you're going to take on some attributes like him and he's withholding something good from you. So he slanders God before man. That's the first time we hear him speak. The second time we hear Satan speak is the passage that you've referenced here in the book of Job. And that is where Satan again acts as a slanderer, and he slanders man before God. He slanders Job before God. Job doesn't really like you, God. He doesn't really love you. You've just bought his love. And the third time and the last time we hear Satan speak in the Bible is in Luke 4, Matthew 4, where he slanders the God-man. Uh, so he is indeed the slanderer, but there are no other uh, passages where we hear the voice of Satan or we see him in conversation with God. But you don't need a lot. Uh, sometimes God says something just once. He illustrates it only once to make a point, and that's all we need. That's all the revelation that's necessary to know what is happening. The only place, for instance, where we see angels good and evil assigned to different countries of the world or in Daniel 10. But God only has to say it once and illustrate it once to give us that truth of what's going on in the heavenly realms. So uh, it's not necessary to repeat it over and over and over again. All right, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, that last uh, caller made a mention of uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God. And our next uh, writer wants to know, um, referencing that particular uh, concept. It says uh, he says it sounds imprecise and very open to interpretation. Uh, this listener says I take that to intent. The intent of this confession is put another way is to answer the question: What is the most important thing for a born again Christian to do? Your thoughts? Well, let's go to our live caller first because we always give preference to them. All right, very good. Yes, thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Yes, um, I wanted to do a study on prayers in the Bible like from the Genesis to Revelation, and I was wondering if there was a best way to do that so I didn't miss any, or if there's a book that shows you all the prayers of the Bible. Well, um, I don't know that there's a book that records every single prayer in the Bible systematically. That probably is a book yet to be written, but there is a plethora of books that highlights a lot of the uh, major passages in the Word of God that deal with the subject of prayer. Uh, Andrew Murray, uh, M-U-R-R-A-Y, has written a number of great books on the subject of prayer. Um, I know as a, as a new believer in the early 70s, um, in the mid-70s, I started reading some of his books in prayer that were extremely helpful to me. So I would recommend any of those. There's a simple little book by an author named Rosalind Riker, R-I-K-E-R, it was a classic little book on prayer. It is now out of print, but if you go to um, half.com, that's the, just type in half.com, that will bring you to the used book side of eBay. In fact, uh, someone recently wanted to find that book, and I said, well, let's just type it in, and there was like uh, 75 different offers for that book, and most of them were 50 cents to 99 cents. 
Uh, in fact, that's a great way to buy a book that's been in print for a while. Instead of going and buying a new book for 40 bucks. sometimes you can find it on eBay for the half.com site for, you know, $1 or $2, and all you do is add shipping to that. But Andrew Murray would be good. Rosalind Riker's book on, on prayer would be an excellent work to read. If you wanted to systematically go through, you could just pull out a concordance. Uh, you know what a concordance is? Yes. Okay, and just look up the word prayer. Uh, and it would, you know, you could look at every usage in the Bible where the word is used. And, uh, of course, you'll miss some of the prayers because sometimes the word is not specifically referenced. But the fact that an individual like Daniel is praying directly to God is seen and clearly understood that the word may not be found. But um, I, I would start with Rosalind Riker's book or anything by Andrew Murray. Those would be great books to read, and they will bring through you. And er- Andrew Murray's books have never gone out of print. Uh, someone always reprints those, even though he wrote, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, someone always reprints those sooner or later. And in in, for the last 40 years, they've never gone out of print. And if you get those, um, they'll walk you through the major prayers of the Bible. It might be helpful to you, too. I have some tapes on how to pray from my series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 6. And I also have one uh, from uh, John 17. And then any books of the Bible that I've taught. I've taught the book of Daniel. Uh, I've taught Genesis, where you see the great prayer of Abraham. Um, I've taught, you know, James, where you see in the interface with uh, the prayer of Elijah. I've cut, taught first a sec- large section of First Kings. So, Annie, too, if you find a passage and you want some help, you could go to our STS website and see if I've taught on that. And I, usually, because I'm, I believe in expository preaching, I'll go through every verse and every aspect. And sometimes books on prayer don't always do that. They may reference the prayer, but not necessarily walk you through it. So, anyway, I hope that helps and will get you started. I appreciate the question and the heart behind it. Pastor, what do you think of uh, E.M. Bounds? Is he, uh... Yeah, E.M. Bounds would be another classic work on prayer. Prayer Power Unlimited is the title of his book, and that was kind of a classic. It do- deals not so much with uh, the different prayers in the Bible as principles of prayer, mm. uh, but that would be a good work to, to read as well. All right, very I good. Have a, I have a shelf of maybe 30 classic books on prayer, but I just want to get them started. Mm. And... All right, great. Uh, Going back to that question from Texas, this uh, writer writes, I've heard it said that the chief end of man is to glorify God. To me, this sounds imprecise and very open to interpretation. I take it that the intent of this confession, put another way, is to answer the question, what is the most important thing for a born-again Christian to do? Your thoughts? Well, you know, I guess I would take it right back to, to glorify God. Really, in the end, that is the chief end of man. That's what Ephesians 2 teaches, that God basically created us and saved us and redeemed us to make us trophies of his grace for his glory, to the glory of his praise. And so I think a number of the old confessions and catechisms, when that question was asked, what is the chief end of man? And it's uh, to glorify God is an accurate answer. Uh, Some have added to it to know God and to glorify him forever or put different twists on it, but... Um, you know, the Lord didn't create us because he needed us. God doesn't need anything. 
God is totally complete in himself. It's not like, oh, God needed someone to love him back. God doesn't need us to love him. God is totally complete in himself. God created us to, for us to honor him, for us to magnify him because he's worthy of glory. God's not on some egotistical trip where he needs someone to do that because he's insecure and needs someone to speak highly of him. Uh, God is totally complete in and of himself, and we have the privilege of being able to honor him. And so Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let men see your works in such a way that they may honor or give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 525-1859, toll free, 877-WAGP980, or uh, you can always get us um, online at uh, tbl at wagp.net. That's right. Uh, you can... You can call us at any time if you want, and uh, we'll do our our best. Um, someone has uh, called this morning from Westover, Vermont, and let's go to that question and see if we can respond to it. All right, um, they write: if the land uh, if the land promise made to Israel was unconditional, no matter what Israel did, then just uh, for one example, what is Deuteronomy twenty nine about? Well, there are different covenants that are found in the Old Testament. There's the Abrahamic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant. So there's a number of different covenants that you will see. A covenant is a promise. And some promises and some covenants that God made are bilateral in nature. They're two-way covenants, just like... Uh, There are two-way promises in the New Testament. There are other covenants, other promises in the Word of God that are unilateral. They're one way, and God's going to do it no matter what in spite of man. Uh, God someday is going to raise everyone up, some to a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of judgment. It's a promise God has made. It's going to be fulfilled no matter what, period. There are other promises in the New Testament that are conditional nature. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. That is a conditional promise that Jesus made. Um, it's not. It's based on our meeting the condition of being willing to obey and depend on Christ and to allow his word, which becomes the the basis for our obedience and the direction for our obedience to richly dwell within us. And if we're meeting that, those criteria, then we can come to him with our prayer requests and we can expect him to, to respond. Um, there are other, again, promises that are unconditional. And so when you look at Deuteronomy 29, don't confuse that with the Abrahamic covenant. Because in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, God gives these promises of of life and death and um, a choice that people will make. He said, see, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering in it to possess. And so there were some terms of the covenant that are expelled out in the 29th and 30th chapter, um, where if the people of God would obey, 
God would bless them. If they disobeyed, then there would be consequences. And those that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is conditional in nature. But God made a covenant with Abraham earlier that was unconditional in nature. And if you remember, when he made it, Abraham was asleep. And um, very often you would cut a covenant in ancient times in But to do that, you would take some animals, you'd split them in two, and then you'd walk between the animals. And we see an illustration of this in Genesis with Abraham and God. Um, And you basically said when you walked through those animals that if I don't do what I say, you can do to me what we've done to these animals. In other words, the, the promise was so sure, so certain, so sticking Um, that you're willing to put your own life on the line. Well, the covenant that God makes with Abraham was of a different nature. And so Abraham has a dream. And uh, God makes a promise to him that is quite unconditional nature. He puts him into this deep sleep. Now, when the sun was going down, this is Genesis 15, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to him, Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good ripe old age. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So God makes this deal with Abraham, and the Abrahamic covenant is expanded. There are three dimensions to it, a seed, a land, and a blessing. Um, God said through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And it's a covenant that is unconditional in nature. Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces. The Lord God does. He's the one who makes the deal. It's a unilateral covenant. That's why God's not done with Israel. But don't confuse that with the conditional covenant of Deuteronomy uh, 29 and 30, which is a whole different covenant altogether. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brody. Um, I've been studying uh, eschatology uh, and uh, went through the three schools of thought. And my, my, my church, as well as my school that I studied with, uh, they have the premillennial uh, viewpoint. It's just a literal interpretation. It's not that I don't believe. It's just that I'm having doubts because the church fathers came from the millennial understanding. Uh, most of uh, most of other main sects come from the millennial, where it's, it, they take it figuratively, figuratively and, and symbolically. Um, is, 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 can you that and some of the new this new uh, the new idea about this is is pretty much new in in theology wise within the last 20th century? Can you help me alleviate any fears or, or, or better understand? Um, why our church as a group of the, of the body of Christ has come to this conclusion that 
It is literal. I know the most prophecies, um, all the prophecies come from a literal interpretation. They eventually come about, but they don't necessarily come about how we how we view them beforehand. It's always like an epiphany moment afterwards. Oh, like oh, that's what he meant, uh, and so forth. Well, it's a great question, and I, I um, did a series that's available in our Institute of Biblical Studies. I think there are 52 lessons in it. It was one of the longer uh, series we did, and it was on eschatology. Eschatos means last things, and so it was the study of the last things or the last times. And, of course, uh, when you think about the millennium, there are three primary views, a premillennial, an amillennial, and a postmillennial view. The premillennial view speaks of the fact that Christ will return and the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament will literally be fulfilled. That Christ will uh, keep his promise to Israel where uh, the prophecies he had made concerning a kingdom where one of the descendants from David would literally rule upon the earth will be fulfilled. That's the premillennial view. Now, the fact that there's a kingdom that will literally take place on the earth with Messiah ruling and reigning here is not a New Testament doctrine. That's an Old Testament doctrine. The length of it, and so mele means a thousand, is something that we don't know from the Old Testament, but we learn in the New Testament that Messiah will rule and reign upon the earth for a thousand years. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I believe when you look at the early church fathers, they held to a premillennial point of view. And in that course on eschatology, I quote a number of them. It's not until, you know, the 5th century when you have a guy by the name of St. Augustine or St. Augustine, however you want to inflect his name, comes along and he presents a different view. He presents a view where basically he says God is done with Israel He thought that because Israel didn't meet her end of the bargain, so to speak, that God was done with the Jew. And he said a lot of good things, Augustine, but he said some awful things, too. He said some terrible things about the Jews. In fact, if you go to the Holocaust Museum in either Washington, D.C. or in Israel, in Jerusalem, you'll see some of the statements St. Augustine made about the Jews, you know, referring to them as the scum of the earth and so on, and just some awful things that in some ways people think uh, he was helped res- responsible for planning some anti-Semitic thoughts. Again, I don't want to take him out of context, but I think he said some things he shouldn't have. But he said a lot of good things too. But lay that aside for a second. I believe the covenant that God made with Israel, and this goes back to the last question from Deuteronomy 29, was unconditional in nature. That um, God made a promise that concerned a land, a seed, and a blessing that was not conditioned on Israel's obedience. And so you come to large portions of Scripture in the book of Ezekiel. You come to Isaiah starting around the 60th chapter, and it describes a time frame on on the planet that the world has never seen before. You know, where the lion will lay down with the wolf, where the baby will play next to the cobra's nest. Um, we've never seen anything like that before, but God describes a time like that where if a man lives only to be a hundred years of age, he'll be considered cursed. Um, how are we to understand those? Literally. I mean, what's the biblical 
principle for interpretation that drives us to that conclusion. And again, this comes back to a question asked from the front end of today's Bible line. It comes back to how do we interpret the Bible? And again, you find a model in the New Testament on how to interpret the scriptures because you see the New Testament writers in a number of cases interacting with the Old Testament and they apply a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of the Bible, what we might call a plain interpretation of the Bible. Sometimes evangelicals today are a little uh, hesitant to use literal interpretation because uh, we're accused of... uh, Um, ignoring metaphors and uh, figures of speech, and we don't mean that historically when we use the term a literal literal interpretation of the Bible. So maybe more and more today people will say, well, we believe in a plain interpretation of the Bible. Whereas Dr. Walford used to tell us at Dallas Seminary a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, So you know, how were the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled? Literally, all 333 of them. So how would we expect the prophecies for a second coming to be fulfilled? Literally. So St. Augustine planted the seed. Some of the Protestant reformers bought into the fruit of that seed that was established in Roman Catholicism. Central to Roman Catholicism is the thought that God's done with the Jew, uh, the church, The Roman Catholic Church has replaced national Israel. We are now the true chosen people of God. So you've got guys like Melanchthon and Luther and Calvin who grow up in the thick of of Roman Catholicism. Understand there are other people who lived during the time of the Reformation that were never a part of the Catholic Church. There were just Bible-believing Christians who didn't have anything to protest because they weren't a part of it. But you had men who were in the thick of Catholicism, and, and they just kind of put a different spin on it. They said, well, okay, well, it's not the Roman Catholic Church that's the true people of God. It's the body of Christ. But nonetheless, God is done with national Israel. So when Calvin came to Romans 9, he didn't see it as a passage of Scripture that dealt with a national election, but with personal election because of some of the premises that he began with, that he started with, that God was done with national Israel. He put a different spin on infant baptism. Just uh, said, well, it doesn't wash away sin and instill salvation to the soul, but it's something we should still do, and he redefined it. So he's very Catholic in a lot of his doctrines. But in this course in eschatology, what I do is I examine how at different times in the history of the church, there have been an emphasis in different aspects of theology. So the early church first emphasized the deity of Christ and then the the triunity of God. And at different times in human history, they're emphasizing different things. And of course, during the Reformation, they're emphasizing soteriology. They're not focusing much on eschatology, but primarily on how is a person saved and what is our final authority. But as we've moved here, I think to the last of the last days, there's been a great emphasis on eschatology, and probably rightly so, as God prepares us for the return of his Son from heaven. So it's not a new doctrine. Now, there might be some argument regarding the pre-tribulational premillennial view or the mid-tribulational premillennial view, but premillennialism is not a new doctrine. It's as old as the church fathers, and it's as old as the Old Testament. Anyway, we're out of time for today. Wish we had more time to dialogue on this, but thanks for your questions. God bless you, and have a great day.